Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm delighted to welcome Mark Allen, Lansex Chief Executive, to PropCast today as the first guest in our CEO series. Now, it's around a year into the job at Lansec and Mark has set out his strategy for recovery that involves £4 billion of disposals, doubling down on London and a singular focus on taking a lead on all parts of the ESG agenda. The company has a raft of exciting new developments coming out of the ground in London and while we look forward to a summer recovery there's obviously still going to be some choppy waters ahead. Now, much of that is due to the landlord and tenant relationship, which has been front and centre of the news agenda over the last year. So, Mark, let's start with that. How do you think the dynamic between landlords and their customers is going to be redefined following the pandemic? Now, I think the pandemic has brought into really quite sharp relief just how outdated the notion of landlord and tenant and a focus on what's fundamentally a contractual relationship is. Uh, if I think about you know, going back a few years now to, to working at Unite, when we started that business and scaling that up, we were focused on a relationship with students who fundamentally were our customers. And yes, there was a lease in place, but the business lived and died by its ability to deliver for its customers. And I think that's something that has gradually then taken effect in other sectors. And if you look at the sectors that have done really well over the last 10 or so years, I think they're all parts of the property market where customers are, are, are fundamentally really well understood. Uh, but it's not and- even just that. It's just even even that word, even that word, customers. That and Unite were one of the first companies in property that, that uttered that word. Yeah, and I can remember having a, 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 I think it was a BPF-sponsored conference talking about customers. Yeah, I and, remember it. That, that's where um, I remember it from. And <laughs> it, it, so it, it shouldn't be earth-shattering, and it's a, it's kind of staggering that in certain parts of the market, perhaps it still is. But you know, the, the origins of property from an investment point of view are all about fixed income and all about someone's going to pay me an amount on this lease for the next 20 years, and I can price that, and I know that income's coming in. That's changed very rapidly, and it, it's, it's taken a long time and the pandemic has really brought it into sharp relief. It's taken, it is still taking time for parts of the sector to adjust. But fundamentally, as a landlord, you're a provider of a service, you're a provider of a um, of something that your customers need. And you've got to understand those customers, you've got to build deeper, more strategic relationships with those customers. And the better you understand them, the better you can provide a service that is valued by those customers and they'll want, mm. rather than having a lease that tells them this is what they have to do and this is what you have to do. And, and this this operationalization of the real estate market, that that's only going to deepen, isn't it? W- without doubt. Without doubt. I'm, uh, who is out there now signing 25-year leases? Very, very few people. Uh, and the world is changing very rapidly. So actually what people need from their real estate from their properties, whether that's retail, whether that's office, whether it's student accommodation, industrial, what what people need is changing all the time. And so the idea that a business will know exactly what it's going to need for the next few years or, or a an owner of that property, a landlord is going to know what people need, it, it, I think that's just passed. Things change too quickly. And so you need to work in a collaborative way together. And that means being more operational. And to me, that's always been a way of creating real value and and and, and real competitive advantage and i think that will continue to be the case and and does that 
does that pose an existential an ex I can't even say it, existential challenge for for some of some you know for some of your peers in the marketplace? Does because again it's it's a totally different way. I mean you know this because you've you've you know you you created a a market leading business that was based on operations, but again it, it's a very different approach from most of the REITs, most of the the investment managers in the market that have generally thrived off the 10, 15, 20 year leases since the year dot. I think things ha- there has been a lot of change already. So I I wouldn't want to say it's an existential threat to, to lots and lots of businesses. If you don't change the way you're thinking, though, and you don't change the way you go about your business and, and managing your relationships with all of your stakeholders, most importantly, your customers, then your business is ultimately not going to thrive. And there's a very good chance that it won't survive. But I, I yeah. do think we've seen a lot of change already. The pandemic uh, we, I think, Landsec, for example, I think we will come out of, I'm certain, in fact, we're coming out of the pandemic with better relationships with our customers than we went in because we were forced and they were forced to get our heads together and say, right, how do we how do we work our way through this together? And what and what do you pride on? What do you pride yourselves on doing differently? I mean, how do you how does how does Landsec see the world differently from from others? Well, we're on a journey at the moment. Um uh, to coin a phrase, so I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that we're perfect with this stuff today. But I know what we're focusing on is building deeper, more strategic relationships with our customers in, in in all different parts of the portfolio. So the better we understand them, and the better they understand us, then ultimately, you know, the opportunity for win-win, uh, win-win situations, as opposed to zero-sum game, which is what I think a lot of the origins of the property sector probably assumed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let, let I mean, let's 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 move through the different asset classes. Then, um, obviously, offices, the workplace, whether it's got a future or not, that that's been a constant conversation piece over the last year or so. Do you accept we're likely to now see a, a polarization in the market between basically between grade A and everything else, and that's basically what we saw happen with retail and around. 2009 2010 where you had that massive diversion uh in in performance yeah i i think candidly at the moment anyone who offers a view on what happens with the future of the office can only be guessing because we're still here functioning in lockdown with yeah. you know vast majorities of workforces office-based workforces working remotely but i think there are definitely reasons to feel more the, the, the grade A, the prime office space is better suited to provide the needs of employers and employees in a post-pandemic world. So it will have better air quality. And you know we all know a lot more now about how important it is, how much time fresh air is circulated through a building per hour mm. um, in terms of air quality and the ability of, um, in the context of COVID, how many people you can have in a meeting room, for example. Yeah. Um, lift capacity people are going to be worried about if i do have another pandemic how many people are going to get up and down to my floor in the lift so i think all of that stuff is designed into new buildings on top of health and well-being uh credentials sustainability credentials that have been important to increasingly important to employees for a good number of years now so i think that points to modern accommodation uh prime office accommodation being more resilient um does it mean that secondary disappears um you know history would suggest there'll be some really clever innovative people out there who'll come up with really quite interesting offers that appeal to a segment of the market um and so i think we will see some quite 
interesting new ideas and solutions coming forward. The flip side, of course, to all of this is that whenever you get to any property and decide, right, that's got to end of life, I've got to knock it down and rebuild it. Um, all of that's now got to be done in a way that you know, works from a sustainability point of view. And knocking down and putting something new there is not necessarily the easiest easiest way to achieve that. So I think we've got a lot of things coming together. Mm. But the quality stuff is probably better placed to, to, to benefit longer term. I, I would agree with that. And that's going to be a big thing in London, isn't it? And for big projects now, the Mayor of London has said you've got to have to have a whole life carbon assessment. You're going to have to think about the circular economy. You're going to have to think about embodied carbon, which yeah. is you know miles beyond where we are now, where it's you know MEs and EPCs, and that's kind of you know as long as someone's got a nice BREAM certificate, people are generally happy with that at the minute, and we're about to go a lot further. Uh, we're we're about to try and go a lot further. Absolutely. Well, you're, um, you're, you've got a great. Tell us tell us about the forge because that's uh, um, that's 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 a pretty cool building. Yeah, so that's one of one of four projects that we're building at the moment down in Southwark. So we're on site with that, but that's our first uh, net zero zero carbon development. We're on site with that. That'll be completed um, a couple of years time. Uh, and so the way we've gone around the whole procurement of that, the materials that have been used of that have all been very much with a zero carbon output in mind we've now got consent planning consent for another development also in Southwark which will be our second fully net zero development as well uh, and there was definitely before the pandemic there were already clear signs emerging from occupiers that that was actually increasingly going to have a bearing on decisions they made about where they chose to base themselves mm. and that to me is always going to be that that's where the the, the, the test of all of this is really because it's really easy for everyone and relatively easy to talk about net zero and, and sustainability credentials and BRIAM certificates, as you said earlier, and those things. But we're going to get to a point where actually, unless the market is valuing sustainability differently to buildings that don't meet those, or the government is going to step in through regulatory tax type interventions that actually you know, force that direction of travel, you know, there are going to be some really hard challenges to make, uh, decisions to make that are going to make it really difficult for businesses to be competitive in the marketplace and be truly net zero. Mm. So I think we've got all of that ahead of us in the next 10 or so years. No, absolutely. And I think the other thing that's really great about that project is you know, you're know you using a design for manufacture and assembly a platform approach, DFMA, to use the, the industry jargon. And it's basically yeah. going to be one of the first what really one of the first major new commercial seems it's going to take that approach that offsite approach to uh to, to construction which is uh, you know has been quite prevalent in the residential market really over the last 15 20 years on different levels in student housing and prs particularly clients that we work with uh doing that uh and, you know like Ilka homes and and vision modular systems and graystar but but it's you know it's another level then to do this in a commercial context isn't it uh, it is, and you know the the, the level of innovation. And the 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 the, the, you know, the genesis of this project predated me at Landsec, so I'm not about to sit here and try and take any credit for it. Um, but that the, you've got to think about the whole thing. That's right. We won't we won't tell anyone. Don't but, worry. But from the very outset <laughs> of when you when you're looking at the design of a project, taking it through planning consent, and then thinking about your supply chain, you've got to have that mindset in place from day one. Um, and if you do do that, then I think there's a huge amount of waste and inefficiency you can take out of a process um by focusing on getting the supply chain to work more effectively so i think the level of innovation that is is, is really quite exciting uh i think we'll see a lot more of it um uh, going forward and you know there, there are businesses all through the supply chain now that are really you know looking to 
make a name for themselves in that space. And you've got a, a government that I think is fundamentally keen to support that sort of innovation and development. And you've got a sustainability agenda, uh, the link you originally made, which is going to force people more and more to think about things like waste and inefficiency uh, within mm. how buildings are constructed and indeed deconstructed eventually. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the other problems that the industry hasn't really even looked at yet. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's that's going to be one of the bigger challenges. In, in terms of other projects that you've got on, on on the office side, you've obviously got the Lucent as well behind Piccadilly Lights, which is really the ultimate landmark location. How how do you see projects like that fitting in to the new world? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the pandemic last year... Uh, I think happened at, at to the extent it's possible to happen at a, a sort of a helpful time. It, it happened at a point with our development program where we were able to look across all of our uh, developments in the city, and we hadn't committed really beyond uh, doing the work in the ground on these things. So we were able to effectively to uh, maintain our options for longer than than would ordinarily be the case. So it did give us the chance to go back and say, all right, what do we actually want to do? Which which projects do we want to bring forward? Um, and we looked across five property, yeah, five projects, four of which we've we've since recommenced. Uh, and I suppose it really boils down to having a clear view of are people going to want to base themselves here? And that's either based on live discussions with people, and, and believe it or not, there are a good number of occupiers out there at the moment thinking about their long-term office requirements and wanting to take new space. Um, but it was also in something like Lucent, it's about the location, the specification. I mean, that you know, the, the Piccadilly Lights are one of the most iconic images anywhere in the world. Yeah. So to be able to have yourself based essentially in the building that, to which they're attached, I think for a particular type of business, a particular type of occupier, I think that's going to be you know, a, a really, really significant draw. So we well, it makes it a lot easier. Crack Meet me outside my office to go for a drink on a Friday. It's much of an easier conversation if you're there. Indeed, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm all places to choose from. <laughs> but but the great thing about Lucent, Mark, I mean, from, from having looked at the designs and the CGIs that you published, you know, there's a great focus on natural light. There's loads of uh, of, of greenery around it, and, it, and it's almost like that you've been thinking for a long time about the sorts of ways in which people want to work in this collaborative space, um, and and those are the sorts of features that that seem to define a lot of your schemes at the minute. It, to me, it's it's something that Landsec has been doing for for a long time, and it was something I certainly was impressed by in, in joining. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's not just Lucent. I mean, you look at any of our current developments. In, de- in fact, anything of our, our recently completed buildings, and I think if you go in there as a potential occupier or as a as someone, who, or potentially an individual that's going to work in there, I think you get a sense of actually how I could spend time kind of living and working in and around this sort of space and how I might be able to reconfigure it and change it going forward rather than it just being you know, functional space that just squeezes people in, has them sat at desks. And I think that's going to be vital to the, I suppose, the, the, the relevance and value that workplaces will add for businesses mm. and for employees going forward. Uh, it, it's about so much more and, and indeed will be more and more about not being sat at desks doing work that you can, candidly do anywhere now uh it's about how, how do you encourage people bring people together encouraging ideas creative thinking collaboration training and development uh it, 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 people are going to use that space in very different ways and i think we're going to see a lot of um really quite interesting ideas and innovation in the next few years but to me landsec has always been trying to understand what do we need to be delivering 
for people to see this as being not just the space they want to be in today, but how that space can continue to evolve and be the space they, they want to be in in 10 years' time. Mm. I mean, and, and thinking about Piccadilly, obviously the West End itself uh, has had a few challenges, not just through the pandemic, but over the last few years, and with some pretty big exits on the retail side, Topshop, Arcadia Group and, and others. You know, there's a few... A few black holes appearing in Oxford Street. Where where do you see the future of the West End? Obviously, you're very committed to that with with some of these projects and other other assets that you own. But do do you have a view on on where the West End goes next? I, I think you're right in terms of some of the the, the challenges. And obviously, there's been some um, pretty high profile business failures recently that have have been linked directly to to big spaces on Oxford Street in particular. But to me, the the thing that has made the West End what it is over you know, decades and decades is just that it brings together a whole range of different um, people and backgrounds and uses and, and how all that lands in the, the built environment around there and the fact that it, the scarcity of the West End um, on top of that means that I think we'll just see it evolve and change and you'll have seen the stuff from M&S earlier this week about how they're thinking about their their Oxford Street store and it's too big for what it was originally designed for we don't need all that retail space but actually do people want to be in this part of London? Absolutely. So what other uses, what other things could we bring forward? And I think we'll also see there's been a lot of focus on digital versus physical in the overall retail space in the assumption yeah. that everything ends up being digital. And what we're actually interestingly starting to see now, and I think this will start to feature in some of those really high profile locations like on Oxford Street, is you're seeing digital native brands, digital only brands thinking about, right, how can I establish some sort of physical presence, though, that is complementary to what I'm doing in my purely digital space. And so I think we'll see some interesting developments along those lines as well. But yeah, London and the West End specifically has has been through lots of challenges uh, you know, over hundreds of years and has always reinvented itself, changed and come out stronger. And yeah, it, it'll do exactly the same this time, exactly what it looks like and how it does that. You know, that, that's, that's down to all the innovators out there, but yeah, it will come back stronger. It always has. And, and in terms of the wider retail market, we're obviously going to be seeing uh, a pretty major rebalancing there. How how is Landsec going to be adjusting to that? Uh, so that maybe the pandemic has has turned what was going to be a five year slow motion car crash into a six month um, yeah, major car wreck in terms of the overall sector. But I actually think the positives of that are is we're going to see some people walking away from it. So our job at Landsec has been to I think first of all grab the reality of what's happening and to ground our strategies and our approach to be a winner in that sector uh, in that reality and I think if I talk about when I when I when I talk about reality the first thing I think we have to accept is for consumers in large elements of the retail world now online is the preferred channel and it will remain so so you have to think about retail property in that context. So either you're providing something that is complementary to that online channel or you're providing something that can't be replicated easily online. And if I look in our portfolio, outlets, uh, we have a, a portfolio of outlets aimed at premium brands. Um, they trade that they were prior to the pandemic trading fantastically. In between lockdowns, they traded fantastically because you can't replicate that online. So we're going to see 
those parts of the retail property world that either provide something you can't get online or they provide something that's complementary or a combination of those two things, that's what's going to thrive. And I think there is a future for that type of retail. I think it'll be a strong future, but there's quite a bit of pain still to go through because there's far too much retail property in the UK as things stand today. Mm. But that in itself could then be the raw material for how do you repurpose, reimagine and regenerate areas around the country that are currently represented by property that that we're not really going to need going forward. So Mm. there there are lots of different angles as to how it plays out uh, going forward, but there's still pain to go through. But for us, it's about being realistic about it and then spotting where can we use our skills and expertise to ultimately be a winner. And I think that's much clearer now than it was six months ago. And what role do independent retailers play in this? Because again, you're you're absolutely right that we we you know ironically we've not built enough houses, but we've been building tons and tons of retail space over the last twenty years. Um, you could argue that if we had a square foot of housing for every square foot of additional retail space in this country, we'd have no housing crisis. But probably another podcast on that one. Um, but, but that aside, one of the challenges I think when when people think about the negative perceptions of the real estate market. One of those negative perceptions is that developers build all the same stuff everywhere. And you go from Bath to Bristol to Swansea to London to anywhere, and you've got the same row of shops, the same brands, the same people. Yeah. Is is and is that fair? And and is there something that the industry can do to 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 flip that perception to better help independent retailers and and ultimately create a more resilient business model. Yeah, I, mean, I think to the question about you know what, what's the role for independence and, and and different types of businesses, different types of ideas. I mean, to me, that has to be a vital part of a you know, a balanced community, a balanced offer in a shopping centre, whatever it may be. Um, I think sort of laying the blame of that at the door of the developers is probably a bit lazy because you have to think this is all driven ultimately first and foremost by consumer behaviour. You know, it, it was consumers that decided it was much easier to go and do my weekly shop in Tesco than it is to go through seven different stores along my high street. And that accelerated the demise of the high street. It was consumers who decided it was much easier to go to out-of-town retail because I could park my car for free, wander around, I can go and you know, put stuff yeah, back in absolutely, the car. It's absolutely. easy. It's consumers that decided they wanted to do things online, not physically. And it'll be consumers that decide, actually... I do like a bit of variety and I do like an independent and I do like something a bit different alongside what I can get from those big names. I think what we as a sector were too slow to spot was how that change was happening. And so there was just more, too many people just doing what they'd done before, um, turning the handle, building the same sort of thing, doing the same leasing deals with the same businesses. And you end up with shopping centres with far too much fashion because those were the companies that were prepared to sign the leases with Mm. the big rent numbers on. Too much F and B because you have too many of these brands, you know, having a, a scale up rollout model that isn't sustainable. Certainly, when you add them all up, um, we were too lazy as a sector to really think about that, do our due diligence, and recognise actually, even though they might be prepared to sign the lease that says that, they're not the right mix. So we've got to see ourselves and taking a much more proactive role in curating the right lineup of experiences and brands yeah. in a retail context. What should the role for planners be? Because again, one of the other things you know, you think about. I mean, I, it's, it's not about a blame game. And my my point wasn't that landlords are to blame. My point is their perception is that they're to blame. And I think 
that that's the key thing, right? Because when it comes to some of the the the, the bad policy and the negative things that the industry's faced over the last year, all of these things emanate from people having very little sympathy for the real estate industry. You know, it's seen as an easy target because you're not going to lose any votes smashing the property guys around the head with with, with nefarious yeah, I, taxes. There's and, no question that you know the sector has has had for some time and it, it emanates back to the, the financial crisis. I mean, it's probably not quite as bad as the image that, 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 that bankers um, you know, have to deal with, but it's a sector that is at the, you know, at the back of the queue for, for sympathy and it's an easy one to, to ignore. The flip side, of course, is as we're now talking about coming out of the pandemic and talking about recovery, um, you know, we're going to need to see billions and billions of pounds invested in recovery, in regeneration, whether that's through infrastructure, whether that's through real estate investment, whether that's through regeneration and repurposing you know, town centres. And that capital has got to come from somewhere. Uh, and the, the government can only write so many checks, and they've been writing a lot of checks over the last year or so. So, But what we as a sector need to do is make that case more articulately and make it more relevant for people to see actually the role that that investment brings uh, and the jobs that investment helps create because mm. it's all well and good for in the current you know, hospitality businesses to talk about the jobs they create but those hospitality businesses those those restaurants they're in buildings that are built by other people the capital comes from other people the fit out of their units typically comes from or at least a portion of it will come from the landlord all of that has gone towards contributing to creating those jobs and it'll be those people at the very outset of making that investment in regeneration and development going forward that will be triggering that new wave of job creation. And without that, you don't get it. Uh, but we've got to do a better job of articulating that without question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a storytelling exercise and and that is something Agreed. that it's something that many people do very well when they're raising money, but but forget about almost sometimes after they've raised the money, they, they forget about the need to continue bringing people on that journey. But as you say, I, mean, I think there's there's an opportunity, isn't there, with when it comes to jobs, when it comes to the broader ESG agenda, and, and lots of people, obviously, very focused on on the E element when it comes to sustainability, because you can you, know, you can relatively simply manage and measure energy and water retention and things like that. But it's it's much harder, isn't it, to to kind of tell that story when it comes to the softer skills agenda. The contribution to local area and community the sort of social value side of things yeah it's, it's more esoteric and, and it's a bit more it, it's always at risk of people just trying to sort of pluck a big number out of, of the air and then justify it with with a series of different things i mean what we what we certainly do and i i think you'll see more and more of this going forward is i think as a business as a, as a property business you need to you need to decide what causes um and uh yeah what initiatives you're going to support and to me it's the ones that are that you benefit from ultimately most as a as a business. So if you if you're a developer if you're bringing new investment into a local community then you want that community to be success the people living in that community want that to be success whether whether they've got the same measures of success is what we need to challenge and make sure that you haven't got a developer coming in and saying well my measure of success is the IRR that I make on this project whereas the local community is saying well, what we want to see is a better you know we want to see a, a different mix of of uses here we want to see some more community facilities involved we want to see more local jobs we want to see investment in education whatever it is we have to align what we're trying to support for what people in that community want to see because that's ultimately what will be the you know the the, the that was what will define the success of that community if those things aren't there people will mm. choose to go and live somewhere else 
uh, or work somewhere else or base their businesses somewhere else. Um, and how does that align, I suppose, that the pressure of being a listed business is that you obviously have to report every quarter and, and you have that scrutiny, you have that spotlight. Uh, at what point are you able to say to your investors, well, we're going to take a slight hit on this, on this IRR at, at the, but the, the benefit of that's going to be, well, we can provide this for the community. How, how possible is that in the current environment and, and how you know, much more possible th th than it was, because I think, uh, and I went the way I just described the other day um, was the difference between a shareholder culture and a stakeholder culture. And I think what you're increasingly seeing, um, certainly amongst some of the more uh, far-sighted um, investors, capitalists, is they're saying actually, you know, that, that, yeah, capitalism does a lot of great things, but there's a lot of things that it can also um, do badly or problems that it can cause. And we need to be much more alive to those things. And I, I believe now investors are much clearer about thinking for these businesses to be successful for the long term. They, they've got to be focusing on their reputation. They've got to be focusing on the value they bring to society and the communities they're in. If they're doing that, they're going to be better quality businesses. They're going to be here for longer. It's a better quality investment. Um, and that is more and more understood now. It's, of course, there's still plenty to do, but the notion that, Profits good. I've just got to deliver a big profit for my shareholders. Um, yeah, you know, I think people realise the quality of that return is as important as the quantity, and the quality of a return from a business that is properly invested in its local communities is much better than you know, than someone isn't. And there's you know, every day you see reputational issues and challenges caused for businesses that have been too focused on the the quantity and not enough on the quality. And I think we're just going to see more and more of those. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very it's a very well put answer. Um, I mean, let's let's focus on on your new strategy then for the for the part, final part of, of this interview. Um, so, t talk us through three or four of the key things that you're planning to undertake as part of the the post COVID strategy that that you're implementing. So, uh, I think that the, that the key couple of key points to land. So I think the first thing is for me, when I, when I joined Landsec, you know, getting on for a year ago, one of the things that struck me very quickly was just the, 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 the sheer quality and capability of the people within the business. But if I then looked at the portfolio of property that we owned, um, it was quite defensive in nature, very high quality, but it was relatively um, defensive in terms of the uh, returns it was offering. So we had people that could add loads of value but a portfolio of property that you couldn't add a lot of value to. So our strategy is grounded in a few things, really. First of all, focusing on total return. So value that we create rather than just the income and the rent that comes from the properties. Yeah. Um, and secondly, as a result of that, we've got to recycle capital more actively. So we're looking at selling about a third of what we uh, currently own in the portfolio over the next few years. And that's going to be a mixture of either sectors where we don't feel we've got competitive advantage. So hotels, leisure and retail parks with earmarked for disposal over the next few years, or it's going to be assets where we can't really add a lot more value. And a lot of that is very high quality prime London offices with long leases to strong occupiers. Uh, and there are better owners of those assets than us. And we can then focus our capital and our people on how we create value and whether that's on assets that we own that need to be repositioned. You know, retail would be an example of some of that, whether that's on new development. Uh, within central London or elsewhere, or whether that's increasingly on mixed-use regeneration, a lot of the stuff we've we've been touched touching on earlier in this conversation, 
Um, I think that's where we need to, we need our capital and our people to be better aligned in terms of where we add value. And that's really what's at the heart of the strategy. Mm. Yeah. So it, it, it's less about picking sectors and allocating capital. It's more about how do we make the most of our people and put our capital in the places where they can add the most value. That makes a lot of sense. So I mean, that, and that's about four billion that you're looking to 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 essentially put on the table over the next few years. What? It, yes, exactly. And, and what is what is the time frame for that? I mean, how how what what is the sort of? Uh, so we sold about six hundred million at the end of last year, um, and I think over the next couple of years we're likely to sell. Yeah, roughly two billion or so, I would say, of property, probably from central London, and then on a two to three year view, we're likely to then look at selling the uh, the hotels and leisure. Once we've seen the recovery from the pandemic, that is, you know, it's obviously hit hotels and leisure very hard in particular. So it, it, it overall is sort of a three or so year time frame, and then of course we start to reinvest that within development, mixed use regeneration, etc., um, on a you know, one to five year time scale. Yeah, yeah. And 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 in terms of in terms of that that investment that redeployment of capital, what role do you see technology playing in in that strategy and and, and how you shape the next wave of development and in how you collaborate in how you innovate in how you engage tenants occupiers customers. I think the biggest opportunity within that. I mean. You know, tech covers a, a very broad range of, of things and it's quite easy to pay lip service to it. Um, the, the big area that we are most focused on, I think, is how do we really harness data and how do we use that to make better decisions, but how do we use that to build deeper relationships with our customers for their benefit and our benefit? And uh, we've made some changes recently within the business to, to bring more skills in, in that and focus in that area in particular. And a lot of it is not just about collecting data it's about understanding how to use it how to visualize the data and how to make it more impactful uh, and so i think that for me is the area that we are most focused on in the in the very broad area that's defined by tech and, and that do you, do you see a landscape then where the reits all have chief data officers working in their businesses because none of them do it at the minute uh yeah i i suppose yes and no so yes i think data will be more important i think having a chief data officer doesn't suddenly make you a data savvy organization. So I think it's a much deeper cultural change than no, that's giving true. someone that's the true. job. People think it does. Yeah. Say. Head of innovation. Now we're an innovative company. Um, so I think, I think it's a much deeper seated cultural change about how you, how you harness and use data within a business. But uh, it certainly will need to be more important in my view for businesses to be successful longer term. Thank you then to Mark Allen for a super wide-ranging and very honest appraisal of the market. It was great to hear about some of the innovations in design and construction that Landsec is leading the way with. And I think we'd all agree that the industry does need to get its house in order when it comes to harvesting and crunching data. Now, next up in our CEO series will be Shaftesbury's Brian Bickle. But in the meantime, please do stay tuned to Propcast via Spotify, Apple and PropertyWeek.com. Do subscribe and share these episodes via social media and do get in touch with any feedback or suggestions. I'm Andrew teacher at Blackstock Consulting. Thanks a lot for listening.